Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And now I've got my London Film Festival special out of the way, I can get back to my regularly scheduled programming. This is my cinema edition of reviews and is a lot later in the week than I usually would have liked to release it, but I had to spend a lot of time releasing my epic London Film Festival special. And my streaming edition of this podcast is now severely behind schedule and there's going to be at least seven reviews in the next streaming special I record. So yeah, that's going to be a long show as well. So in this episode, I will be reviewing three cinematic films which were released this past weekend. But before I get to that, I need to make a public announcement. Over the last few weeks, my RSS feed, the method by which this podcast is distributed, has started becoming very, very unreliable. It's the same feed I've been using for well over 10 years now and is running through FeedBurner, which doesn't actually exist anymore. Google bought it and then stopped updating it in about 2014 and technically it doesn't actually exist anymore, although old feeds like mine were grandfathered in. And it stopped working properly. So... It's starting to be a little bit of a bore's like to actually release these podcasts to make sure they're actually getting into the feed, actually getting distributed and getting seen by my listeners. So I have come to the conclusion that the time has come to completely reboot this podcast. This is probably something I should have done quite some time ago. When I started this podcast, Raw Footage, the idea was that I would record a review of the film I'd just seen, having just come out of the cinema using a portable recorder, and then edit that down into a podcast. The idea being that the initial reaction you have to a film is usually the strongest or the most accurate. Over the years, that has fallen away, and nowadays this is just a standard film review show in this yay, nay, or meh, trifold format. But I've clung on to the raw footage name and branding much longer than I probably should have, especially considering my user base is incredibly low. So the time has come to change. I have started the transition from the Raw Footage podcast to the Yay, Nay or Meh podcast. I have already purchased yaynayormeh.co.uk and there is a bare bones, very much work in progress website up there already with a feed. But it is very much a work in progress. I'm not even sure you can publicly access the RSS feed yet. But 
I am gradually teaching myself how to use a WordPress site because, you know, the whole reason why this is failing is the blogger site has stopped doing RSS properly. So I'm having to teach myself WordPress as I go along and it's a rather slow and laborious process. So for the next few weeks and months, I will hopefully be releasing these episodes in tandem on both feeds for the Raw Footage podcast and the Yane or Mare podcast. After this podcast is released, I think I will start releasing the Yane or Mare RSS feed to places like iTunes and Google and wherever else I can release it. So it might be worth your while to try and find the Yane or Mare podcast in your podcatcher of choice and transfer over your subscription to make the transition smoother. My aim is that at the beginning of 2023, I will solely be updating the Yay Nate or Mare podcast and I will shut this down permanently. And I will release a final capping episode to say now is the time to transfer. But for the time being, the Raw Footage podcast and the Yay Nate or Mare podcast will be running in tandem with identical episodes in the feed. And that is how I'm going to have to do it. So yeah, great changes afoot, and it's going to be a long and fiddly process to try and get everything up and running over on my new website and new feed. But for right now, the Raw Footage Podcast still exists, and I still need to release some reviews. So in this episode, I have three cinematic films for you. The gigantic CGI superhero blockbuster or supervillain blockbuster Black Adam. The latest film from Martin McDonough reuniting his cast from In Bruges, that is The Banshees of Innis Sharon. And we also have the first Somalian film ever submitted to the Oscars, The Grave Digger's Wife, which I managed to see with a Q&A over in the Watershed Cinema in Bristol with both the director and star of the film. So three films in this cinematic episode, and without further ado, let's get on with today's show. Cinema Reviews Black Adam is the latest addition in the DCEU and supposedly is somewhat of a reboot of the DCEU although, honestly, I can't quite see it, but it's supposed to be a change in direction for all the DC side of the superhero universe. Taking as its somewhat strange protagonist, Black Adder, who is mostly known as the supervillain of the Shazam series, at least in the comic book sphere, but this has long been a passion project of Dwayne Johnson. And when Dwayne Johnson wants to be in a superhero movie, you build a superhero movie around him. So this somewhat obscure, somewhat villainous character, or at best, an anti-hero, is the first film which takes the DC extended universe in a different direction. 
It is directed by a very safe pair of hands, Jaume Colette Serra, who actually has some decent stuff in his CV. He directed Orphan, which is one of the best twist-ending horror movies you will ever see, and I really, really do want to get to the sequel of Orphan, which was out this year, but my feeling that it would end up on Paramount Plus eventually doesn't seem to have happened, so yeah, but anyway, Jaume Colette Serra directed Orphan. He directed the rather well-received Blake Lively thriller The Shallows. He's done many films with Liam Neeson in the old guy action movie genre, like Unknown, Nonstop, Run All Night and The Commuter. But perhaps most importantly, his last directing job before Black Adam was Jungle Cruise starring Dwayne Johnson, and that perhaps helped him get the gig for Black Adam. So we start this movie in the ancient, I mean almost antediluvian society of Kandak, which is supposedly before Greece, before the pyramids, so far back in history that it is lost to the mists of legend. And the king of this country, Kandak, is a brutal dictator who is forcing his own people into slavery for the sake of finding this mineral ethereum, which he wants to turn into a crown and inhabit with demons so he can rule for eternity. But a rebellion is started by a young boy who is a slave in this country. And when Inevitably, this rebellion is tamped down. The seven wizards of the Shazam franchise give this young boy the power of Shazam. Very much the same way that Zachary Levi did in the Shazam movie. And we're getting another one of those in a couple of months. But anyway, this young boy turns into Shazam. And instead of, in our version of Shazam, turning into Zachary Levi, this version in Ancient Kandak turns into The Rock. But he fails in his mission to fully free his country from this ruler, and he is buried in the mists of time. Scroll forward to modern Kandak, where the country is in the grip of Intergang, a violent group of mercenaries and exploiters of the people and the resources of Kandak, and fighting back against Intergang is a feisty archaeologist played by Sarah Shahi, along with her cheeky son Bodhi Sabongwi and her layabout brother Mohammed Amer. She believes she has found the actual location of this ancient crown which, in her mind, will bring back this mythic hero, Teth Adam, played by The Rock, and free her country from Intergang. But a series of misadventures happens. The villainous Marwan Kanzari gets involved. 
and suddenly all hell is breaking loose. And all the superhero shenanigans which seem to be going on in Kandak has drawn the attention of Section 9, led by Viola Davis's Amanda Waller. Viola Davis really is turning into the Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury of the DCEU. But yes, Amanda Waller sends the Justice Society to investigate these superhero shenanigans, led by Hawkman, played by Aldous Hodge, alongside his Justice Society teammates, the world-weary Dr. Fate, played by Pierce Brosnan, the very clumsy and very inexperienced Atom Smasher, played by Noah Centineo, who has only just got the Atom Smasher costume from his uncle Henry Winkler, who literally phones his performance in, recording a two, three minute scene on FaceTime. But Noah Centineo has only just inherited the Atom Smasher costume and doesn't know what to do with it. But he is kind of cute and is making eyes at the other member of the team, Cyclone, played by Quintessa Swindell, who is the computer geek of the team and very enthusiastic. But all of the Justice Society members try and contain and trap Teth Adam. I mean, this is a too powerful being to be controlled. And Hawkman, played by Aldous Hodge, has a very black and white version of morality. You are either bad or you are good. And if you are bad, we will lock you up. But Sarah Shahi and the other residents of Kandak say, look, Teth Adam is essentially our King Arthur. He is this legendary figure. He has come back. He will help us. We want him around. And this is not something that Teth Adam particularly wants. He has no interest in modern day affairs. He doesn't particularly care that Kandak, his ancestral home, is taken over by these prisoners. He is completely out of time and place and doesn't care. But what are the chances that he will eventually be brought around and become a hero to Kandak? Or at least an anti-hero. Someone who does heroic things, but also doesn't mind killing people too much. Which is a constant conflict between Teth Adam and Hawkman. But yes, will Intergang, led by the villainous Marwan Kanzari, rule Kandak? Or will this ancient anti-hero save the day? So there is some interesting stuff going on in Black Adder. I think the ideas of American imperialism or you know, the imperialism of the Western English-speaking world, those ideas are brought forward in this film. The idea that this country has been under the thrall of this intergang for 26 years and nobody's done anything about it. I mean, specifically at one point, Sarah Shahi says to Aldous Hodge, where have you been for the last 26 years? I mean, now this superhero's shown up, you've shown up, but what happened when intergang was in charge 
of our country for 26 years. You did nothing. Why should we help you now? And you kind of see her point. And I can't help feeling that approaching these ideas of American imperialism or, or the imperialism of the Western world is made more palatable by the fact that these are mercenaries. This is a criminal gang rather than a Western government trying to interfere in another country, which happens over and over and over again. I mean, the allegory to a place like Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, I mean, it's definitely there to be seen. Western countries interfering in this in this situation and not really understanding it and arguably making things worse. And suddenly you're coming in and trying to save the day? No. He's our hero. I mean, yes, he kills people, but Teth Adam, Dwayne Johnson, is our hero. We want to go on his side. And, you know, the grey areas of this whole thing, I think it is rather interesting. Having those ideas presented, albeit in a, a detached, tangential kind of way, but they are there. So there's a little bit of interest there. I mean, choosing somebody who is morally questionable, but seems to have your best interests at heart, or you hope has your best interests at heart, because I think the analogy between Kandak and Teth Adam, this legendary revolutionary, is somewhat similar to England and King Arthur. This idea of a mythical ruler who, in our time of need, will come back and help us and save us. I mean, that is the kind of thing we are dealing with. But another mildly interesting aspect of this is when he does show up, this quote-unquote hero from the past has no interest in saving Kandak, has no interest in improving Kandak. He just wants to get these people with guns off his back. He is not a hero. He repeatedly says he is not a hero. Until, you know, it reaches the point where, look, Kandak is going to destroy itself. I mean, Marwan Kanzari and Intergang are dangerous entities. We need to stop this. So he eventually steps up, and somewhat reluctantly. And the conflicts between this you know, villain, so to speak, and the Justice Society and the larger Section 9 with Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis. I mean, the great areas, I mean, I, I think that the moral certainty of Aldous Hodge, of Hawkman, is a fascinating aspect of this. I mean, there is right and there is wrong, and there's nothing in between. And there kind of is, and you need to deal with that. You need to accept that some morally questionable things need to happen for the greater good. Uh, and Hawkman has a very, very difficult time accepting that. And here is these people going into a foreign country and wrecking the place. I mean, this is reportedly a change in direction from the DCEU, but the same issues that there were in something like Man of Steel are in here as well, because, you know, the quote-unquote good guys go into Kandak and basically wreck the place when they are trying to control and contain 
Teth Adam. They essentially absolutely destroy Kandak. I mean, this very inexperienced hero, Atom Smasher, played by Noah Centineo, his power is that he turns giants. I mean, he's basically Giant Man, or the equivalent of Giant Man from the Marvel Comics universe, and he doesn't know how to use his power. So he, at random intervals, he just gets really large and just knocks buildings over. And were there any people in those buildings? There probably were. So here is a group of Western people coming in to save Kandak, and basically they're destroying the place. Uh, and you know, we need to do this because it is the right thing to do. But the people of Kandak don't actually want you to help, and they'd actually like the other guy to help. So there are subtle hints here and there about American imperialism and the moral grey areas. And that's kind of cool. But, at the end of the day, this is still a blockbuster. This is still a superhero movie, which ultimately is not much more than pixels smashing into each other. We have computer-generated Hawkman fighting computer-generated Teth Adam. We have computer-generated Demon fighting many computer-generated Dr. Fates played by Pierce Brosnan. And there's supposed to be some emotional heft to it, there's supposed to be some pathos to it, but it's just pixels smashing into each other. The action scenes are not especially well choreographed. It certainly doesn't help that a lot of the opening of this film strongly, and I'm pretty sure deliberately, reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark, with a somewhat shady archaeologist trying to find a particular artefact and the plucky group of underdogs saying, oh no, they're looking in the wrong place, I think it's actually over there, and they find it. I mean, very, very Raiders of the Lost Ark. And some of the choices, I think, are a little bit on the nose. I mean, the first time that Teth Adam, who renames himself Black Adam, right at the end of the movie, I mean, that's essentially the last line of the film. But Teth Adam emerges into the modern world in the middle of this desert, and he's surrounded by you know, helicopters and tanks and everything. I mean, how does a group of mercenaries have access to that many helicopters and tanks this surely seems like an invading force from a country but regardless teth adam is in the modern world and you know floating around and trying to assess you know your magic doesn't work on me and magic quote unquote is you know bullets and rockets and i started hearing in the soundtrack hang on that bit in the score that sounds familiar that sounds like Paint It Black. And then they just go the full way. I mean, this black-clad superhero is floating over this desert and destroying all these tanks and guns in slow-mo, and the track is Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Very, very on the nose, very, very choreographed, very, very stylized, and... Honestly, a little bit blunt. I mean, did you have to have that obvious a needle drop and present it in this 
glamorous, slow-mo, pixels blowing up kind of way. I mean, yeah, it's empty. I mean, in common with the overwhelming majority of superhero movies, this is empty. And yes, sometimes I enjoy these superhero movies, even if they are empty. But this one is just another one on the never-ending conveyor belt of superhero blockbusters. It doesn't distinguish itself. It's honestly not trying too hard to distinguish itself. If this truly is an attempt to change the direction of the DCEU, I really don't think they've course-corrected very much. So, yeah, Black Adam is exactly what it expects itself to be. It's exactly what you anticipate going into it. It's not much more. It's pretty keys dangling in front of your eyes. Look at the images. Aren't they pretty? Look at the pixels smashing into each other. And that's basically what you get. I mean, yes, there's a little bit of political subtext, a little bit of moral subtext, which is somewhat intriguing, but it's not a strong enough element of this film to make it entirely worth watching. So this is another one of the superhero conveyor belt, and that's all it is. Black Adam is currently in the cinemas and for me it's a pretty middle of the road pretty dispassionate meh next up and changing direction completely we have martin mcdonough's new film the banshees of inish sharon martin mcdonough is very successful as a playwright in the west end as indeed is his brother john michael mcdonough But in the terms of filmmaking, Martin McDonagh came out in 2004 with an Oscar-winning short film called Six Shooter, and then spun that into a reasonably successful film career with the cult hit In Bruges, followed by Seven Psychopaths, which nobody particularly liked, and then got... Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell Oscars for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri in 2017. And now, five years later, Martin McDonough has returned to the feature film realm with The Banshees of Inish Sharon, which reunites the cast of In Bruges, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, as two men living on an island off the west coast of Ireland in 1929. The Irish Civil War is going on on the mainland, but here on Inisherin, life goes on a pace. It's a rural community, it's a quiet community, it's a small community where everybody knows each other, everybody knows each other's business, and life is quiet. Until Brendan Gleeson makes a rather extraordinary statement. He tells his best friend, Colin Farrell, You are boring. I don't have time to spend with you. I never want to see you again. 
And Colin Farrell is shocked by this, doesn't really understand what's happening. Everybody on the island notices this because you know, at 2 p.m. every day, they both go to the pub and share a pint to get all two together. So suddenly, Brendan Gleeson saying, I don't want to even speak to you again, causes ripples all across this island. And Colin Farrell sets about figuring out what he's done wrong, what he can do to fix this situation, and trying to get Brendan Gleeson to actually talk to him again. Until Brendan Gleeson makes an extreme statement, if you talk to me again, I'm going to do something incredibly drastic. Try me. Much against the wishes of the community at large, including Colin Farrell's sister, played by Carrie Condon, and not to be surround the bush, the village idiot, played by Barry Keoghan, Colin Farrell continues to connect with Brendan Gleeson. And Brendan Gleeson goes to extreme lengths to prove his point that he doesn't want to talk to this dull person. And it has to be said, Colin Farrell is a rather dull person. He's not especially bright. He does live with his sister, Carrie Condon, but his closest relationship is with a miniature donkey he has. He loves this donkey to distraction. I mean, it's his constant companion. And he spends a lot of time talking about his donkey. So, yes, he is a dull person, but at the same time, Brendan Gleeson has made a rather extreme statement. And a statement about his legacy. I mean, he has become concerned about his legacy. He is a musician, a folk musician, a fiddler, and he wants to leave something great behind him, and he feels he can't do that, or at least in his opinion. I mean, this is the excuse he gives. He feels he can't leave something great behind him until he stops spending time with the dullard Colin Farrell. But Colin Farrell keeps trying to connect with Brendan Gleeson, and eventually there are tragic consequences to this. So The Banshees of Inisherin is among the serious Oscar contenders this year. Colin Farrell is supposedly one of the favourites for Best Actor. Kerry Condon and Brendan Gleeson are good shouts for Best Supporting Actress and Best Supporting Actor. Strong contender for Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture. So, a legitimate contender as things stand. And I went into this film with that in mind. And yes, all the performances all around are excellent. The script is excellent. I mean, the very black, sometimes absurdist humour, which Martin McDonough does so well, is there in spades. The exploration of life on this small island in this very specific period of time of 1929. The Irish Civil War is going on on the mainland. I mean, occasionally you hear gunfire and you see explosions from the mainland with the the two sides of the Irish Civil War. I mean, in the aftermath of the creation of the Irish Free State, there was a civil war in Ireland fought between 
those who supported the treaty with England and those who didn't support the treaty with England. And those who didn't support the treaty were the Irish Republican Army. And to this day, the two major political parties in Ireland are descendants of the two sides of that conflict. The Irish Civil War cost so many more lives than the actual War of Secession from the United Kingdom. And outside Ireland, I don't think it's very well understood or very well talked about. But the Irish Civil War is going on on the mainland, but that's definitely in the background. And seeing how this small insular community consumes itself, essentially, with the gossip, with the stories being told about the community, with the frustrations. Brendan Gleeson is frustrated. I mean, he wants to be known or he wants to be remembered as a great musician, but he's worried he won't be. Kerry Condon is very, very intelligent. She is far too clever for this small insular island. If given the opportunity, she does have better things in her future than sitting around listening to her brother talk about his miniature donkey or interacting with the creepy old woman who sends portents of death everywhere she goes, played by Sheila Flitton. And the longer this conflict goes on between Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, the more and more exasperated Carrie Condon gets and just throws her hands up and says, you know, you stupid men, what are you doing? And trying to understand what Brendan Gleeson is getting to, getting at, is difficult. I mean, for both the characters in the film and for an audience. I mean, throughout the entirety of this film, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Trying to find some explanation as to why this decision has suddenly been made that I don't want to talk to you anymore. I I thought maybe there was something at at the beginning of the film, there's talk early in the film that Brendan Gleeson had a son, so I was thinking, oh, the son's gone away to war on the mainland and has died, and that is sort of like the trigger, but we don't really get any of that, Uh, and that's the state we're left in. I mean, these things happen, these extreme decisions are made, and there's not really any strong explanation for it. And that makes it all the more fascinating, I think. The fact that Brendan Gleeson is, A, willing to make this extreme statement that, you know, I never want to talk to you again, and B, is willing to go to extreme, disturbing lengths in order to maintain that statement, These are things which are not easy to deal with and not easy to understand. Yet Brendan Gleeson does them. And yeah, it's... It's kind of fascinating. And it does have the absurdist and intricate dialogue of Martin McDonough. I think 
he's almost certain to get a Best Original Screenplay nomination for this, and I think he will be deserved. He's probably going to get a Best Picture nomination, and obviously I haven't seen a great deal of the other contenders, and and yeah, it, it probably will be on my list as well. I think Martin McDonough knows how to do this kind of thing very well. I even think he might have stolen a plot point from his brother's film, Calvary. John Martin McDonough's film, Calvary, has a plot point in it with Brendan Gleeson in the lead role. And Brendan Gleeson is involved in a very, very similar situation here in The Banshees of Inisherin. So, yeah, it's, it's a film I liked. I can't necessarily say it's a film I loved. Maybe it's one of those things that will grow on me over time. But yeah, I, I do basically recommend The Banshees of Inisherin. It should be still in the cinemas by the time this comes out, and I do basically recommend it. And for me, The Banshees of Inisherin is a very high meh. The last cinematic film I want to talk about in this particular episode is The Grave Digger's Wife, which is the first film that Somalia ever submitted to the Oscars in last year's Oscar cycle, and it's taken essentially a full year for it to come out here in the UK, almost certainly in conjunction with Black History Month. But since it was here at the watershed and there was actually an in-person q a with both the director kadar idris ahmed and the lead actor omar abdi at the watershed so i went along to see it with the q a this is the debut feature from kadar idris ahmed who is a finnish somali director and the lead actor omar abdi is also finnish of Somalian descent. And this film was financed by Finland, France, and Germany and filmed in Djibouti. So, yeah, I think it's a little bit of a grey area how Somalian this film is, but Somalia did submit it to last year's international feature race, the first time they had ever done so. The film is set in Djibouti City where Omar Abdi is essentially an unskilled labourer. Most of his money is made by digging graves for other people. He occasionally picks up some pocket money by being a porter. He is living essentially hand to mouth. But his wife, played by the Canadian Somalian supermodel Yasmin Wasame, is very, very sick. She has abscesses on one of her kidneys and is in urgent need of an operation. But this operation would cost roughly 5,000 US dollars. A sum of money which it is absolutely impossible for Omar Abdi to get under normal circumstances. But he is going to try his best. He's going to do everything he can think of to try and get some money, try and save his wife, who he clearly loves very, very much, whilst also dealing with his 
tearaway son who's about 12 or so years old, played by Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim, who apparently Kadar Idris Ahmed just went to the nearest school to his hotel in Djibouti and hired a local boy who had never acted before. And also, in common with many people in Djibouti, while he speaks Somali, he reads and writes in French. So he couldn't read the script. (laughs) So apparently, Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim improvised quite a lot of his dialogue, which I suppose is the best way to do it with non-professional child actors. But regardless... The son, Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim, is playing truant a lot, is hanging out with disreputable kids on the streets, is probably up to mischief, and this is just another thing piling on Omar Abdi in the desperate, desperate hope that he can somehow raise the money for his beloved wife to get the operation that she desperately needs, or she will die. So I wasn't necessarily that keen on watching The Gravedigger's Wife. It didn't leap out at me as something I needed to see. But with the opportunity of an in-person Q&A with Kadar, Idris Ahmed and Omar Abdi, I made the effort and I did go over to Bristol to see it. And the Q&A was interesting. Almost all the questions were answered by Kadar Idris Ahmed. Omar Abdi basically didn't need to be there. He, he was just sat there for most of the time. I mean, I asked the last question in the Q&A and I tried to get him involved, but it was because it was the last question, he didn't have time to answer it. But it was a facetious question about herding goats. But regardless, the chance to see both of them in person, it, it, made me want to see this film. And I'm so, so glad I did, because I have to say I loved this film. You can easily see this film and this plotline as a tragedy, and arguably it is a tragedy. But what most strongly came out of this film for me was the fact that here is a man who clearly loves his wife completely, is willing to do anything he can to save her life. It's just seemingly impossible for him to do so. And equally, Yasmin Wasame seems to love Omar Abdi in return. I mean, this is a deep and abiding love. This is a portrayal of intense yet humane love. I mean, as I said in the Q&A, I have watched a lot of world cinema and more often than not, films from around the world, from smaller film industries like Somalia or Djibouti or Finland, they tend to gravitate towards the more depressing, the more harsh angles of experience. I can't remember the last time I saw a film where the two main characters were clearly so in love with each other still and 
This is a really, really bad situation, but we're going to do the absolute best we can to fix it. I mean, there's a lovely scene relatively early in the film where you know, Yasmin Wasame is sick. I mean, she's spending a lot of her time in bed, a lot of her time in pain. But she says, she insists to her husband, Omar Abdi, okay, look, dress up, we're going out. And they crash a wedding. <laughs> I mean, this is a couple who like spending time with each other, have similar senses of humour. I mean, using a goat to sneak into this wedding in a really interesting way. Uh, and, you know, they're clearly made for each other. Yet there is this thing that Yasmin Wasame is almost certainly dying. And then when you add in the tearaway son, Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim, who is playing truant, up's no good. I mean, I was sure that this was going to be what a situation where mum is very sick, mum is almost certainly dying, and I'm lashing out. So I'm acting out, so I'm going to get into so much trouble that it's just another concern that Omar Abdi will have of my life. I was sure it was going to be a situation where eventually Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim would cross the line into outright criminality. It looked for all the world like that was where it was going. But it doesn't. It never does. I mean, there's a sequence where I was sure, oh no, this kid is going out on the streets and he's going to be committing crimes. But no, Kadar Abdulaziz Ibrahim, this son, spends all day hustling on the streets. I mean, doing nothing outright illegal. I mean, like washing people's windows at a cross section, barking for a bus service. I mean, saying, hey, this bus is going to this town. Hey, are you going to this town? Are you going to this town? Stone a few seats available. And he gets a, you know, a, a few coins for that. He's hustling all day, doing nothing illegal, but working incredibly hard, as hard as you can when you're 12 years old. And he is so proud of himself that at the end of the day, he has $10. And the family needs $5,000 for the operation that Yasmin Wasame needs. And, and, I mean, that was so sweet and warm. And Yasmin Wasame clearly understands what her son has done for her and is you know, very proud of her son and encourages her son, but it's $10 out of a $5,000 bill. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think this could be seen as poverty porn, and in a way it is. I mean, look at the deprivation, look how hard it is. Isn't living in a country like Djibouti slash Somalia so difficult? And yes, there is that, but at the same time, it reminded me of a study that, uh, that I saw a couple of years ago that even in the Western world, even in the United Kingdom or the United States, the percentage of people who could survive a sudden and unexpected $500 bill is surprisingly low. The people out there who could survive that kind of issue is not very high, even in the quote unquote developed world but putting it in a place like Djibouti with Somalian protagonists 
Kadar Idris Ahmad made the point that this is you know, the first time that a Somalian film or a film in the Somalian language has been made widely available. And there was uh, at least, I would say, a third of the audience I was in, I would guess, was of Somalian extraction in my cinema screen in Bristol. And it was clearly very, very important for these people to see a film in their own language. And Kadar Idris Ahmed made the point that he wanted to show Somalian life uh, and Somalian people in as positive a light as possible. I mean, make it uh, a love story, make it this deep abiding love, I mean, which I absolutely believe between these two people. You know, I can see the love between them uh, and I responded to that love and it was very important for him to do that. When so often Somalians are portrayed in very negative lights. And I instantly thought of Captain Phillips and Barkad Abdi getting an Oscar nomination, an Oscar nomination I absolutely think he deserved. He was a great actor in that film, but he was playing a Somali pirate. And that's basically as far as representation for Somalians goes. So, yeah, having this film Yes, you can argue it's tragic. Yes, you can argue it's poverty porn. But the strongest reaction I come out of it is the strong, the deep, the abiding familial bonds, both between husband and wife and between son and parents, which I didn't necessarily expect to see. And I think there will be people who will be annoyed by the ending of this film. I think. It's one of those somewhat ambiguous endings which either makes this film about an absolute unremitting tragedy or a miraculous situation which has made things better. It could be either. It could be both. I mean, it's kind of Schrodinger's movie ending where both things could and will be true at the same time. And... Yeah, I personally thought it was perfectly balanced. I mean, the, the, the subtleties going on in the final scene, which it, it does depend a little bit too much on coincidence, but I mean, I, you can get away with that once in a film, I think. And, and yeah, I think he did, Kadar Idris Ahmed did. But yeah, it, it's, it's kind of great. It is a film about poverty. It is a film about deprivation. But it is a film about a decent, hard-working man trying his absolute best. It is a film about desperation. I mean, there's one brief moment where the father, Omar Abdi, considers committing crime, but he can't bring himself to do it. And I think that sums up this film. It is about a decent, honest, loving man and a loving family trying their hardest and maybe succeeding and i am surprised how strongly i reacted to the gravedigger's wife i absolutely loved it it might still be in cinemas by the time this podcast comes out either way it's going to be very very hard to find i hope it's going to be available on streaming services pretty soon but however you see it, I do 
actually strongly recommend The Gravedigger's Wife. I think it's outstanding, and for me, it is a yay. New releases. So, as is often the case, it is an eclectic mix of cinematic releases this week. Perhaps the biggest release is a romantic comedy called Bros, which I'm A, really, really pleased exists, and B, I'm really eager to see, because this is a mainstream, big studio romantic comedy with gay protagonists. From the Judd Apatow stable of filmmakers, it's actually directed by and co-written by Nicholas Stoller, who is a filmmaker I really, really like. He was involved in the Muppets movies. He was involved in the Bad Neighbours movies. He wrote Dora and the Lost City of Gold. He's a filmmaker I really respect. And it's co-written with the star Billy Eichner, who I first saw in Parks and Recreation, but is much better known as a YouTube comedian. But yeah, a mainstream, big studio, gay romantic comedy, which unfortunately, rather predictably, has somewhat bombed in the United States. It did pretty well in the coastal regions like New York and San Francisco, but in the middle of the country and in the South, it did very, very badly. And it's also been subject to sustained review bombing on IMDb. A third of the reviews, or over a third of the reviews on IMDb, are one star. So, yeah, it depresses me that every time one of these films comes out, it proves that Sislarge is probably not quite ready for it. But, nevertheless, I am a fan of Betty Eichner, I am a fan of Nicholas Stoller, so I do want to check out Bros, as Billy Eichner, a commitment-phobic homosexual, tries to start a relationship with handsome, hunky Luke McFarlane, who has his own issues as well. So, yeah, can these two crazy guys make it work? Another relatively widespread release is a horror film, thriller film, called Barbarian, which sounds and looks rather interesting. Georgina Campbell plays a young woman who is going to Detroit for a job interview and hires an Airbnb, only to discover that a mistake has been made and the Airbnb is already occupied by Bill Skarsgård. So, reluctantly, Georgina Campbell, with basically nowhere else to go, agrees to stay the night in this house with this stranger. This is not going to end well. (laughs) And yeah, it's some kind of horror slash thriller. And since there is talk of a twist, and Justin Long is also in the cast list, and you briefly see him in the trailer, I think there's uh, quite a bit more going on here than meets the eye. But Yeah, Georgina Campbell and Bill Skarsgård, who, let's face it, does a really, really good line in Creepy. They cast him as Pennywise for a reason. So, yeah, that looks like an intriguing film, and I do want to check out Barbarian. 
And the other cinematic release I want to check out this week is the Palm Door winning film Triangle of Sadness. Now, this is an English language film directed by the Swedish director Ruben Ursland, who has got international attention in the past with his films Force Majeure and The Square. But I'm not honestly a huge fan of Ruben Ursland's output. I mean, if you've listened to my London Film Festival special already, you will know that I'm not really a fan of the cringe inducing humour and approach that Ruben Ursland typically has. And that seems to be what this is, with incredibly obnoxious people having their comeuppance in extreme ways. Triangle of Sadness follows an Instagram model couple played by Harris Dickinson and the unfortunately now deceased Charlie Dean who are going on a luxurious yacht trip with a bunch of incredibly wealthy but very problematic people. And that includes their captain, Woody Harrelson. And when this luxury yacht sinks, they are stuck on a desert island and have to rely on one of the cleaners who is the only one with any practical experiences. So it could well be a similar kind of plot to the classic novel and film The Admirable Crichton, but yeah, it looks like a lot of very obnoxious people learning to survive. And since it did win the Palm d'Or, I do want to check it out, even though, as I said, I'm not usually a fan of Ruben Ursland's material and I'm also curious to see the acting of Charlie Dean who started out as a model but unfortunately died at the age of 32 of a non-covid illness which probably wasn't helps that she was in a car accident when she was younger and had her spleen removed which made her immunocompromised and she died at the age of 32 so yeah that's uh Kind of sad. We can all shuffle off this mortal coil at any moment, but regardless of anything else, it did win the Palm d'Or. It is something of an Oscar contender, so I feel obligated to watch Triangle of Sadness, even though it's not really going to be to my tastes, or seemingly it won't really be to my tastes. There's quite a lot of Netflix films released this week, which I do want to check out many of which seem to be serious Oscar contenders. Firstly, we have the German film All Quiet on the Western Front, which was submitted to the International Feature Race months before its official release. It was one of the very first films that was announced as being submitted to the Oscars, with good reason. I mean, the English-language version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which was, what, I think 1936 or something around there? Very, very early in the Oscars. I mean, it's widely regarded as one of the best anti-war films ever, based on a very famous anti-war novel. And now the Germans are having a go at adapting it. 
since it is a German novel and has German protagonists. Uh, the only actor I strongly recognise in the cast, this is Daniel Bruhl, who has a seemingly has a significant role. But yes, All Quiet on the Western Front, if you don't know already, is about a group of idealistic, patriotic young schoolboys who are whipped up into a frenzy heading off to the First World War with ideas of glory and protecting the fatherland and all that kind of stuff. But these ideas are quickly disabused by the horrors and the tragedies of life in the mud-strewn battlefields of the Western Front. So, yeah. One of the best anti-war novels of all time, arguably one of the best anti-war films of all time, and now it's going to be made in its original language. So yeah, that is being released onto Netflix this week. Another film which has something of an Oscar buzz behind it is a film called The Good Nurse, directed by the highly regarded Danish director Tobias Lindholm, who has a really, really strong CV as both a writer and a director. But this is an English language film based on a real-life story where Jessica Chastain is a nurse who starts to suspect that her colleague, a fellow nurse, Eddie Redmayne, might actually be killing their patients, and takes her suspicions to the authorities and the FBI, or or some kind of law enforcement authority, I'm not exactly sure of the details, but she is encouraged to go undercover wearing a wire in order to try and get Eddie Redmayne to confess. So. Yeah, that sounds fascinating on many different levels. I mean, Tobias Lindholm is a filmmaker I really respect, and Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain, awesome actors. So yes, I definitely want to check out The Good Nurse. And also, potentially having some Oscar impact will be the animated feature Wendell and Wilde, which is directed by Henry Selleck, the legendary stop-motion animation director behind The Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline. But this film is produced by Jordan Peele, and the two main characters, Wendell and Wilde, are voiced by Key and Peele. It's apparently based on a children's book where two demons, Wendell and Wilde, try to encourage a 13-ish-year-old girl to mischief and they've bitten off more than they can chew. So, yeah, gothic, spooky, animated fare from Henry Selleck. I think Henry Selleck is a a director I kind of feel sorry for, because he is an awesome, outstanding stop-motion animation director. But he never truly gets the credit for what he puts out. I mean, his most famous film that he did as a director is The Nightmare Before Christmas, yet that is always described as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And we could be seeing something similar here, where he has directed this film, Wendell and Wilde, but in all the publicity, it is Jordan Peele's Wendell and Wilde, not necessarily Henry Selleck's. So, yeah, maybe, hopefully, he's going to get some credit eventually, but. Regardless, I'm a big fan of Henry Selleck, and I do want to check out his new animated feature, Wendell and Wild, on Netflix. 
and also added to the Netflix list, although I probably won't get to it anytime soon, is a South African film called Wild is the Wind, which looks like something of a police procedural with two cops, one white, one black, and both corrupt, who investigate the death of a young girl in a South African town, which is deeply segregated and divided, and trying to figure out what the hell's going on, you know, making comment about society in South Africa at large. So, yeah, that sounds very intriguing. I do want to get to it at some point, but chances are too much stuff will get in the way before then. And the last new release this week I want to add to the list is a film that is being released onto Amazon Prime Video called Run, Sweetheart, Run, which, thinking about it, actually has something of a similar plot to Barbarian, which I'm going to be seeing at the cinema this week. It's about a young woman played by Ella Belinska, who goes on a blind date with handsome stranger Pilu Asbeck, and it turns out he's either a complete psychopath or something supernatural. I can't quite tell which it is from the trailer. I can't work out if he's a serial killer or a vampire. It could be either, but either way, he's bad news. And Ella Belinska has to escape this guy after their blind date and survive the night. So, yeah, Run Sweetheart Run could be a another Me Too style horror movie quite similar to Take Back the Night, which is going to be in the next streaming edition of this podcast. So yeah, there's been quite a few of these types of films around recently. And Run Sweetheart Run on Amazon Prime is the latest to add to the list. So yes, that is one I am interested in getting to. But of the new releases... The cinematic releases that will be in the next cinematic edition of this podcast will be Bros, Barbarian, and Triangle of Sadness. The Two Watch List. So, my recording schedule has been severely disrupted by all the films I've been watching at the London Film Festival. The times that I would usually be recording my thoughts about the films I'd seen streaming at home. Instead, I've been watching films for the London Film Festival. So I now have a major backlog of films for the next streaming episode. Currently, it stands at seven films, some of which I saw about two weeks ago. But yes, I've yet to record about those, and a streaming special shall be coming imminently. But this does mean that my to-watch list is somewhat different from the last time I recorded. Still on my tablet to watch, having downloaded them from the Google Play Store, we have the movies Summer Issues, where a man comes back from his freshman year of college to work at his local comic book store over the summer and decide where his life is going. There's also Here Before, where Andrea Reesborough becomes convinced that the little girl who's moved in next door is the reincarnation of her own dead daughter. 
And there's also the micro, micro-budget horror comedy Val, where a succubus slash sex worker living in a giant mansion is the victim of a home invasion by a rather inept thief, and she starts playing mind games with him. There's also a string of films which I feel I need to get to because of their various Oscar bait potential. There's The Greatest Beer Run Ever on Amazon Prime with Zac Efron going to the Vietnam War to hand out a beer to all the soldiers from his neighbourhood. On Apple TV Plus, there's Raymond and Ray where Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor reconnect after the death of their estranged father as he in his will insists that his two sons dig his grave for him so they are forced to spend time together very different personalities with lots of issues to deal with in the past and yeah it looks like quite a typical Sundance style film but intriguing nonetheless on Amazon Prime there is the film Argentina 1985 which Argentina has submitted to the Oscars about the lawyer who tried to prosecute the military hunter which had just gone out of power in Argentina in 1985 and the uphill struggle he had to try and get that and also submitted by its country to the Oscars is the Indonesian film Missing Home which is available on Netflix, where an ageing couple fake the fact that they are getting a divorce to force their distant children to come back home and visit them. Also on Netflix is a documentary called Descendant about the uncovering of a shipwreck just off Alabama, which was reportedly the last slave ship which landed on the United States. So late did it land on the United States that it was actually illegal and the legacy of this event is brought to the surface, I mean quite literally as this shipwreck is investigated and the descendants of this slave ship which live in Africa town in Alabama deal with the legacy of this situation. So yeah, there's some films of various Oscar potential that are still on the list. If I need another foreign language film to go over to Bristol with, I don't think I'm going to be making any trips to Bristol anytime soon, but if I do need some more foreign language films on Netflix, I do want to check out the Japanese animation Drifting Home, which has the bizarre premise of a group of middle schoolers who are in an apartment building which is floating randomly in a gigantic ocean. So, what's going on? How did that happen? And just because it's fun, I really do want to get to the Disney Plus film Rosalind, starring one of my favourite actresses, Caitlin Deaver, and directed by a talented director, Karen Main. Rosalind is a variation on Romeo and Juliet, Rosalind is the character who Romeo is dating at the beginning of the play and is also the cousin to Juliet, and she gets dumped, and she's not happy about it. So what happens when Rosalind tries to break up Romeo and Juliet? That sounds fun. So that still remains on the list. But 
out of duty, I'm going to have to tick off some of these Oscar Beatty type films at some point. So those are probably going to be in the streaming episode after the next one, which I'm going to have to start recording basically as soon as I finish this cinema episode. But yes, as it stands, those are the films I'm most interested in reviewing. The Ace. Even in an episode with the very Oscar Beatty, the Banshees of Inner Sharon, the only yay I felt comfortable giving out in this particular episode is to the Somalian film The Gravedigger's Wife. I think this is a beautiful, intense, powerful love story, which I absolutely believe between the two leading actors. I also think it's a great demonstration of familial love with. This 12-year-old boy I was sure was going to be an absolute tearaway. It turns out he's actually a decent kid, and that is portrayed in the film. Yes, this is a film that shows the desperation of being economically deprived, but there's also hope. It might possibly be a futile hope. I mean, like I said, this is Schrodinger's ending. If you wanted to see the ending as utterly tragic, you could. If you wanted to see it as hopeful, you could. It's probably a mixture of the two. But, yeah, it's it's powerful, beautiful stuff. And I really, really responded strongly to it. So, if you can still find The Gravedigger's Wife out the cinema, which is most likely going to be a struggle, I do urge you to check it out. And with any luck, it should be coming out streaming reasonably soon. So, yes. The Gravedigger's Wife from Somalia and Finland is a very strong, very powerful film. I loved it, and for me, it was a yay. So that brings me to the end of this episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.